You're listening to CS Book Club. This week we're reading Chapter 8, Impossible Programs of Understanding Computation. I'm Justin Campbell. With me is Amy Unger. Hi, everyone. Ashton Harris. How's it going? And Brian Cobb. Hello. So this chapter, it felt like the gist was you can't write every program and you don't know what a program will do until you run it. That was my summary. That sounds that... pretty fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's dead on. I mean, it's about trying to discover and prove if there are any impossible programs to write, which we find out there definitely are. Yeah. This is definitely a more philosophical chapter. The actual code, while it does stuff, was not as um, uh, important. It felt like more of like an ancillary part of the chapter than like the focus. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think the the examples in this chapter really felt like example code to kind of help you understand the logic uh, rather than exercises for you to follow along with. Yeah, sort of like um, helping you understand the proof by showing you how you might, like one example of uh, of like a factor of the proof or something in code as like a concrete representation of it. I thought the, it was pretty close to the beginning, but the little bit on total programming languages versus partial, that was really interesting. I don't think I've yeah. ever used a total programming language. Yeah, it made me really excited to try to uh, find one and see what those limitations are. Um, you know, I think it's kind of interesting to see uh, some of the programming constraints that are, uh, that, I think we're embracing now. So, you know, type systems, you have memory management in Rust. Um, it would be really interesting to see how much farther a total programming language needs to go in order to guarantee you that it will terminate. Did you come across any or are we aware of any total programming language that are actually used? You know, you would have thought that I might Google it. Uh, <laughs> probably should have done that. I was under the assumption that uh, Idris or Idris, however you pronounce it, was a maybe not like I don't I don't think it was a total language, but you can definitely um, in the type system say if something is guaranteed to terminate or not, and then uh, with that, like guarantee that your program terminates if all of your subroutines do. I think. Well, it sounded. Yeah. Sorry. It it sounded like to me, total programming languages just completely remove the functionality to have any looping that could possibly, you know, never um, terminate. Which, yeah, obviously seems like it leads to a lot of restrictions. Yeah, I guess it would be interesting thinking about uh, how much extra things you need to know about your. Um, the data under your control. So, for instance, in Ruby, I'm not used to, when I throw an iterator over an array, I really don't care um, how long it is. And maybe I say, hey, give me the length of this, give me the size. Um, but if this were something like C, I could imagine, you know, if you allocate an array, or, you know, you allocate a chunk of memory that's, you know, 52 integers long, it would be entirely safe to iterate over that array, so long as you're not doing anything like, hey, 
converting that into a pointer and then executing code at that pointer. Um, but uh, it does seem like you could do a lot of things in uh, a total programming language. You just would need to know a lot more about the kind of um, objects and data you're working with. Wikipedia states that Idris is, uh, it has optional termination checking. They don't use the word total anywhere here, but I'm assuming that they kind of mean the same thing. Um, and there are a list of languages on here that do not have optional termination checking. They just, they just have termination checking. Mm. And uh, cock is one of them, the one that's a, a proof language. Yeah. That's kind of interesting because, you know, we see in this chapter that, you know, termination checking for, um, you know, an arbitrary language, uh, you know, a, a Turing complete language, that's not going to really happen. Uh, so I wonder how they're doing that for Idris. I wonder if it's that you can only use a subset of its commands and then within that context within those commands you are um guaranteed to essentially have a total programming language plus a few things that um you know you can check those uh the initial examples when we get to talking about checking for termination where it starts out as just a big massive set of case statements i'm sure you can write you know the first like 200 uh -huh. um, and they'll catch a lot of things, right? So 200 total programming language plus 200 special cases. Um, I imagine you could get a lot of language features with that. Right. One thing I liked was uh, in the very beginning of the chapter, they kind of define what a algorithm was. Uh, and one of those things was termination but it also was uh, finiteness, simplicity, and correctness. Um, and that, that wasn't super complicated. I, I guess it's semi-obvious what that is uh, when you think about it. But I just thought it was neat to sit back and think of a think of algorithms as those four things. They're also not particularly rigorous. Like I don't know if you ever did that exercise in school where you're supposed to write instructions for making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something. <laughs> And then somebody is supposed to follow them as literally as possible. And so, like, you know, be like, if you wrote, like, take a knife and stick it into a jar of peanut butter. So I'm like, take a peanut jar of peanut butter, but, like, not take the lid off and start, like, jamming the knife. <laughs> and maybe they would take, like, a steak knife instead of a butter knife. Um, so uh, the fact that there's so much wiggle room in there is, is um, I don't know, I, I don't know how to feel about it. Right. There's actually uh, the course you were just talking about. I think it's like Computer Science 101. I think it's from Harvard, and it's on like iTunes U. I watched it a couple years ago, and that's their very first class is getting kids up on stage and <laughs> making them go through that, teaching the whole class how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it's nice. it's pretty pretty funny and interesting to watch. One of the interesting things I thought of uh, when we saw those four criteria was um, the fact that given that it must terminate, an algorithm must terminate, that an algorithm is only valuable for its end product, not its effects. So I started thinking about back to our DFAs where a prominent example is traffic lights, 
well, I don't really want that DFA to ever terminate. (laughs) Um, So within the context of this definition of an algorithm, though, it seems like because there's no termination state, short of, you know, heat death of the universe, but because there's no termination state in mind, you can't actually consider that to be an algorithm, perhaps. You have to consider... Uh, it almost like a kind of cron job that executes sub-algorithms, and each algorithm is like, turn this orange or yellow, turn this red, turn this right. uh, green. Um, it was kind of interesting, I guess, maybe I didn't fully understand, um, you know, a, a DFA, um, but uh, it, it was just surprising to, to think that kind of one of the easiest practical examples of them does not fit this definition. <laughs> well, that makes that makes sense. Like the traffic light has a state, well, like it is a state machine and the algorithms are not necessarily the state machine itself, but they are the transitions between them. Yeah, I definitely think that's a, that's a good way to think about it. I think one of the things I, uh, I guess I struggle with, with um, thinking about, state machines and then thinking about um these kind of algorithms is the fact that like the transition is the act of transitioning not anything having to do with the trigger so the trigger is you know just something that's that's going to run outside of the logic even though i'm i'm so used to writing the triggering logic programmatically um it's interesting to think about that aspect as being pulled out of the algorithm. Yeah, it's hurting my head to think about like time as an input and like where does that, what value does it actually look like, and how how in the in the context of like a state machine or an algorithm, like how does that get triggered to have the input of like how much time passed and yeah. Justin, I'm sure we can find more things in this chapter that are going to make your brain hurt even more. <laughs> so, <laughs> like the program that reads itself. Yes, we can start with that one. <laughs> that was fun to read. Yeah, I love his comment that, um, you know, kind of like uh, if you give a room of monkeys an infinitely long time to type on typewriters, eventually they'll produce the work of Shakespeare. Well, similarly, we could just process uh, the numbers one through infinity and eventually... Uh, we generate the next hot asynchronous web development framework and retire to a life of leisure. I like that thought. <laughs> yeah, that was really interesting to think about that like all programs could be encoded as a number, so that means every if you keep incrementing a number, you'll eventually make every program. Mm-hmm. That would be a fun uh, exercise. Just do that with numbers and then like only keep the ones that actually are valid, Ruby or whatever programming language. But I imagine that gets so computationally expensive that it would probably take years or decades to like find one program. Yeah, he does make the note that most of them are going to have plenty of syntax issues. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the programs calling themselves... Uh, I enjoyed reading that. It was kind of hard to follow, like the file names and everything. I kind of got them mixed up a lot. Um, and I had to really slow down and like inspect exactly what was happening. I just read this. I didn't, I didn't go through the exercise. 
Uh, I did the same. I didn't think the exercises were really necessary in this chapter. I thought it was more no. high level and they were used for example. I got the I got the gist. The thing that strikes me about this, um, and I guess isn't this an example of what do they call them? Quine? Keen? Quine. Keen? Yeah, I don't know what pronunciation. Keen, but it might be Quine, I don't know. Uh, in any case, um I'm always I'm always amazed by those because there's always some like and this kind of illustrates one such clever trick um to avoid like the program generating itself, you know, infinitely generating itself. Um like you just kind of I, I don't know that I that um that I could have seen the like extra little you the extra little pieces that make the simple like x equals one, y equals two puts x plus y that makes that possible. There's a little reversal in there. Right. So then we got into decidability and the halting problem. You know, it was kind of nice how we like incrementally started from a halting checker and trying to make that work when it was impossible. Uh, but going from that and kind of giving an example of how it won't work, but then kind of expanding that into... I guess more abstract halting problems. Mm -hmm. And I did find this section um, very interesting, but at the same time, I did find it very confusing because the uh, connections that he makes between um, halting down to uh, proving that hello world is um, undecidable. Um, it seemed like very loose connections and maybe I just wasn't following him fully. Um, and I take it, you know, for what it is, and I understand that I'm sure it's fact, but it seemed like very odd kind of connections that if this is this, then this is this. It kind of reminded me of, like, operational semantics in one of the earlier chapters where, like, you don't actually know what something's going to do until you execute it. Yes. And at the same time, a lot of these you can't test by executing because if they end up in an infinite loop, what have you learned? Well, yeah, that was the other thing. Like, not only do you don't know what it's going to do until it does it, but you also don't know if it's going to finish until it does. Yeah. Right, and what appears to be an infinite loop could just be an extremely difficult math problem, like the Goldbach conjecture. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's kind of, he touches on it, I think, at the end of the article. Like, you know, you put in simple checks, you have to, you know, kind of make some sacrifices and say, all right, if this program runs for longer than 10 seconds, we're going to say it didn't work. Maybe it worked after 11 seconds, but a slow program is a problem in itself. So we can accept that. Yeah. And this, and this problem comes up a lot in distributed computing, where if, um, if you have like a cluster of nodes and one of the nodes goes away, like well, the other nodes can't see it, is it gone for good? Is it coming back? Is it just having a timeout, having like a network error? They're all the same thing because until it comes back, you don't know if it ever will. And that could also, you know, be true of uh, like a web browser talking to a, a server somewhere. It doesn't necessarily need to be two servers talking to each other. Yeah, it's funny. At work, we have a bunch of uh, dependencies that we rely on to run on our servers. Uh, command line utilities to help us process very, very large files. So we run into this occasionally, you know, something just will not terminate. And it's often impossible to tell whether it's something that might eventually terminate <laughs> or whether it's just going to churn for forever 
on this, you know, multi-gigabyte file. Usually we have a good sense for it, you know. It's, if it's been gone for, you know, a couple minutes, it's probably not going to terminate. But ultimately, we don't really have the luxury of figuring that out. Um, so we just, you know, just about anything has a termination um, command on it. If it's not done by this point, just kill it. And same difference from a practical point of view. Uh, from the purposes of the uh, theories in this chapter, obviously, um, big difference. But uh, it is funny to see just how much, uh, to a certain degree, it doesn't matter uh, in real life. Because um, we just put timeouts and everything. Yeah, I mean, if you're not, so, you know, big video files are, they're large, it's a problem that has some degree of scale, but they're not massive mathematical problems, so by and large, we just throw throw timeouts and throw kills on just about everything, and if it doesn't finish, you know, it needs to try better the second time. <laughs> but... It is. It it was fun to read this chapter with the context of, oh gosh, I bet these young, optimistic CS101 uh, people might come into this chapter and think, gosh, golly gee, I know when I can recognize code that won't halt. And um, I came into this chapter like, yeah, of course, of course it's impossible to tell. I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. Yeah, good luck to those people. And I really love the, uh, I can't find it right now, but um, the example of not just in a programming language, but like in English language, the sentence, uh, this sentence is a lie. Yeah, I, I uh, had to make a note of that. It <laughs> can't actually be true or false. Uh, so if you were like write a machine to parse that, it just, it just couldn't. Like there's no, there is no answer. So what you're saying is that we shouldn't be worried about AI taking over anytime soon. <laughs> 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 yeah, it is one of the, the funny things to observe about uh, about people that there is um, something about humor. I think just about everyone you say that sentence to um, will kind of think about it a little bit and then kind of laugh. Um, and it's funny how we have in our minds kind of this, uh, I don't know, stack level too deep response. Of just ah, oh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> Moving on um, to to a lot of these a lot of these things that are just simply irresolvable. Turns into a vicious cycle of this sentence is a lie, except that one. <laughs> and I also like that, like the uh, the reason why it is um, undecidable, or whatever, uh, is because it references itself with the word "this," which is just like in programming language we use like "this" or "self" or you know in the uh, earlier examples of a program reading itself kind of has the same problem. And then also in the halting problem, uh, he mentions that you couldn't write a halting problem, uh, a halt method, because then you could just pass it to itself and you'd have the same problem. Yeah, it wasn't until I read uh, kind of that sentence, that little note, that it, it fully clicked with me, the uh, the whole do the opposite dot RB running do the opposite dot RB. Right. And then it was just like, oh, this, running this. It can't ever be right. So, <laughs> yeah. 
I found it now. It's called the liar paradox. I love the section heading coping with uncomputability. <laughs> it's like a great struggle that we all go through. Yeah. Well, he he mentions whole... depression at some other point. Yeah, that's when the whole chapter gets really ominous. Denial is a tempting response. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there there are some practical components to this where just because, like, in general, it's not possible to tell if a program is, if a, you know, Turing complete written, uh, if a universal language, sorry, a, a program written in a universal language terminates, you can statically analyze it still to some extent. Um, so there is hope. Yeah, all the examples of, like, practical ways of analyzing it all just remind me of like you know tdd or bdd or whatever people want to do these days but it's just you know or unit testing just being able to you can break things down for your individual program to make sure that it's doing to some extent what you would expect expect i was going to say the same exact thing thanks anytime <laughs> also the last one is uh approximate a program by converting it into something simpler than ask the silo questions about the approximation that kind of uh, hit with me for like reducing a problem to its simplest form, uh, which I think people do a lot in functional, functional programming. Like, how do you how do you sum a list? Well, you don't ever really sum an entire list of like ten elements. You you add the first element to the rest of the list, and then you do that one by one. Uh, and that kind of made me think of that, like breaking a problem down into like the smallest part of the problem first can also be helpful, I think, when trying to find the simpler uh, program, you end up maybe adding one more constraint than you have for real, and that can help clarify everything else. And then once everything is clear, it's easier to relax that constraint because you understand everything but this one little thing. If you've never read the book, How to Solve It, um, by, I think, Gregor Paglia? Polya is the author's last name. It has a lot of little tips like that for just how to how to take complex problems and break them down into simpler problems. Hey, Brian. Yes. Want to suggest that for our next book club? <laughs> we could. Yeah. yeah. So if, uh, if you're listening to this and we're almost done this book, Understand Computation, on the website, csbookclub.com, uh, there's a link at the bottom of the page called Suggest a Book. So go there, click that, and put in whatever book you think we should read next. It would be really helpful. Any other thoughts on this chapter? Also, it's George, Paulia. My mistake. All right. So next time we're reading uh, Programming in Toyland. If you want to hear this episode and uh, more, go to csbookclub.com slash understanding-computation. And see you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye, everyone.